Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> uh, Father God, would you, would you open our eyes to whatever you want us to see in this, this very strange story. Uh, Spirit, open our hearts, our eyes, our ears to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that story is uh, it's one of the most famous in all of the Bible. It's the, it's the center of the life of Abraham. And since Abraham is maybe the central figure of the book of Genesis, it's sort of like the central story in the book of, of Genesis. It is, it is disturbing. Uh, it's, it's infuriating. It's confusing. It's, it's, it's a strange story. And so for 2,000 years... Uh, it's been one of the most debated stories in all of the Bible with all kinds of interpretations, ways to try to understand what's going on here. Because like the central tension is God commands Abraham to do something that later in the Bible God will tell people is evil. A child sacrifice is condemned all over the Hebrew Bible. And, and yet here God is telling Abraham to, to offer his own son up as a burnt offering. And so for thousands of years, this, uh, this story has been just hotly debated. And, and the good news for you is that in a little over 30 minutes this morning, I'm just going to clean all of that up for you <laughs> and make it perfectly uh, clear. It's like two people came up after the sermon first service. Like, hey, did you read about this? Like, I did. There's been so much written. I'm not going to say everything. Um, but that's the, that, that, that's, this, is a, this is a hard story to, um, to understand. And even in my own life, like this story, 
uh, became like, just crucially important to me in my early 20s. And, and I was, as I was sort of deconstructing the faith I had grown up um, in, and I think was encountering, I think, the Bible in more faithful terms, uh, this story was really influential uh, to me, and in particular, a sermon by Tim Keller on this. So if you've ever heard Tim Keller talk about this text or preach in this text, I'm just owning the fact now. Like, that was, like, not just like, hey, what good sermon. I mean, it was like a centrally defining moment in my life. And going back and hearing that sermon again this week, it's like, oh, man, so much of my language, the way I think about God, is shaped from this, this story. And so I want to think about it together. And, and the question we all wonder is, like, why does God ask Abraham to do this? And that's an important question. We'll get to that. I think the real question for me in this, this story is, why does Abraham go up the mountain? Right? What enables Abraham to, to go up to that mountain to offer his son up? So that's how we're going to think about this story. What, what got Abraham up that mountain? And we start where the story starts, or where we need to start is where the story starts, which is, uh, as I mean, like, this is the climax of Abraham's life. And there, there, throughout the story, there are so many, like, clear callbacks to earlier moments of, of Abraham's life. And in particular, when God says to Abraham to go and offer his son up on Mount Moriah, that's a clear, there's language that's clearly calling back to the initial call of God on Abraham in Genesis 12. And so if you've been with us all summer, like we started in Abraham, uh, Genesis 12, uh, Memorial Weekend. And here, wrapping up another holiday weekend, uh, is this story, which is sort of the, the wrap on Abraham's life. And even though we're going to continue and finish out the rest of the book of Genesis, really, like we're closing a key part of the narrative of Genesis today. And this story isn't just about this one moment. It's about Abraham's entire life. And so this call of, God, of Abraham here is directly linked to the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 when God told him, I want you to leave your family and leave the country you know that you grew up in, and I want you to go into a future with, with me instead. The language of Genesis 22 here is very similar to that language. And there's two, th- two points of contact, two points of clear callback. The first is when God says to Abraham, take your, your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. That, that Hebrew word for go it's a, it's, a, it's a unique construction, and it only appears, um, if I remember correctly, two times in the Bible, here and in Genesis 12. It's sort of like, go to yourself, it, is, is kind of the way it's, it's translated. And so it's clearly connecting those two events, Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, that when God comes to us and begins to invite us into life with Him, it, like if there's a going involved. You have to leave something and go into something new. But the other point of connection, which I think is clear and more important, is is that in Genesis 12, God told Abraham to go away from his hometown to a land I will show you later. Right? So he doesn't like tell him where he's going. He just says, like, walk that way, is what it says. And here is something similar. He says, go to the land of Moriah, offer Isaac there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Right? So it's like, go that way, is what God says to Abraham in both, both moments. And I think it's important to, the, like, the call of God in our life isn't often, uh, like, here's how it's all going to turn out for you, right? Like, here's, here's exactly what's going to happen. It's, it's, it's God coming to us saying, you know what, come with me this way. And so that's what Abraham does. And so my question, why, why does he go? Right? Why does, what gets him up that mountain? I want to start on reflecting on that question uh, by, by drawing, like, the call of God often uh, is, is undefined. And so I, when, I, when I first started serving in the church as a pastor, kind of early 20s, um, I was part-time, a youth pastor. It was close to the, the town that I uh, went to college in. 
And, um, and when I was there, I sort of like, it was a really sort of an earth shattering experience for me in the first few months of serving. Cause I grew up with like, with pretty easy childhood in that, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of death in our family. There wasn't a lot of suffering. Uh, you know, it was pretty easy middle-class suburban life is what I had. And what quickly happened when I became a pastor was, was like the reality of the world was just unveiled quickly. And here's how I would define that. I, there, was a, there was a guy in my church. His name uh, was Tom Smiley. Um, I, that was his real name. If, and if you were to picture, like, what would a guy like Tom Smiley look like? That's what he looked like. He was a happy guy, just a fun dude. And, and he, uh, he was a golfer. He found out I was a golfer. So he was the first person to ever take me out golfing as, as his pastor. And, uh, and so we go out, we're golfing. It was a great time. And we get to the end of his round, and he begins. He's, he's older. He's he's retired teacher in his upper 60s at this point. And he just says, you know, he starts talking about his wife, Beverly, who uh, who had dementia. And I like this is my own, like I had no idea what that was. And that's how sort of easy my childhood was. I didn't know what dementia was. But as he began to explain what it was, it I began to make sense of my encounters with her, which was she, she would often call me by the wrong name, like, over and over again. Um, and she would always, like, she would come and tell me, like, these little, like, sayings, phrases. And she would walk away. Then she would come back and say them to me again. And it was like, like, did she, like I wasn't sure what was going on, like, because I didn't know what dementia was. And he began to explain um, what that was like and how hard that was for him as, as someone who had been married to her for over, over 50 years at that point, how difficult this um, this was, and so like there I was at 20 years old, uh, hoping to be married at some point in the next few years, and having like this very clear picture of how even a great marriage, how it ends, right? And when you're in your tr- early 20s, I think it's easy, like it's easy to idealize family, and like family's going to be great, I'm going to have kids, it's mar- and, it, and it, all, it all is great, and yet, like in those first few months of pastoring, like the reality of the world, and how hard it is, how dangerous it is, became very very clear to me as I saw like marriages, you know, death, as I saw uh, kids who had been abused, parents who were estranged from their children. And suddenly the world just looked very, very differently to me as if like all my foundations were sort of taken out. Um, And that's why I said like this text really, really shaped me because it became very clear to me that like the only sure foundation on which to build your life is, is God. Everything else crumbles. Like even the good stuff, all of it, a good marriage, uh, like even the like kids, right? Like all of it is, it's a, it's a hard, it's not a good foundation to build on because it crumbles. And that's a part of what's going on in this, this narrative. The call of God is, is one where you begin to recognize the only foundation I can build on that will be taken from me in the end is, is God. And I think that's why early in his life, Abraham leaves his family, his security, what he knows to take up life with God because it's the only foundation. And so all of us, I think if you're a Christian, if you've taken up faith with God, like, like you've recognized that, right? The only foundation of life that actually lasts is God. And yet uh, you become a Christian, you, you know, it's like, you, okay, that's true. And then yet like we forget it and we start building our foundations on other things, right? And we begin looking for identity in our marriage and our kids and our career and success, all of those things. And so we don't just hear like God for the first time coming and saying, build your life on me. He has to come again. And what's happening in this narrative is, is, is God is coming to Abraham again. And what's, like, what we couldn't do is uh, Genesis 22, uh, believe it or not, it follows Genesis 21. Uh, and that's a very important story to set the story up, which what happened in Genesis 21 is uh, Abraham, if you remember a few weeks ago, he had, um, you know, he and Sarah were having a hard time having a child. 
And so they decide, let's, let's take this servant Hagar, let's make her kind of a half-wife, let's have a son through her instead. So they do that. Uh, Sarah sort of repeatedly mistreats Hagar and Ishmael, all the way to the point where in Genesis 21, it gets so bad for Hagar and Ishmael, God says to Abraham, send them away, right? I'll, I will take care of them, I will bless them, but you need to send them away. And so Genesis 21 is this really painful narrative of Abraham saying goodbye to his son. Right, Because a, a lot of the story of Abraham's life is how he tries to get a son and how he abandons God and does all kinds of like, not good things to get himself a son. He's trying to gain his identity, trying to build a foundation on a life through a son, which is a part of why God comes to him here and says, Abraham, like, I want you to offer Isaac up. And what, he's do- what God's doing in that moment is he's asking Abraham, what do you want? Uh, do you want me, God, or do you want a son? What do you want? And I think the first thing that Abraham, like that drove him up that mountain is like Abraham recognizes God is, is, is calling him to account for having built his life around a son and not around God. And there's this question, will he offer him up? So that's where the story starts. It's, it's, it's pretty heavy. It's pretty, it's pretty deep. And I, so I want to draw two points of application for us living as people who are interested in Jesus, you know, 2019, what does this mean for us? And there's a couple things to think through. And the first is what I just landed from, which is that, that God wants you to want him for him. Right, just for him's sake, for his own sake. Not because God can get you something else, which you really want. Um, he wants you to want him for him. And, and I think the reason why this text became so important to me in my early 20s is that I, I found like a lot of my faith was built on the fact that I thought like, if I lived a good life before God, he would give me the things I want. Like he'd give me the job I want. He'd give me the wife that I want. He would, like, if I, if I do this, God does this. And what's, what's really true in that scenario is what I really want is not God. It's this stuff over here. And God is just a means to get those, those things. And, and so the question this text, I think, pushes uh, us to ask is, is, like, what are the things you really want in life? Like, what, what's the non-negotiables for you? Right, the things you're willing to sacrifice to great lengths to have, the things that you're willing to give up anything to, to give. Because a lot of what was happening in my own life in this story is, is I, God was deconstructing that what I really wanted was a safe life with predictable outcomes, you know, a good family. And, and God was deconstructing that, saying, do you want that stuff or do you want me? Which, which is it? So this story, in, it begs us to ask, what, what do you want? Do you want God or do you want what, do you want what God can give you? Which is why I think in both cases, when God comes to Abraham, he doesn't say, go here and this will happen. He says, go in this direction, right? Abraham doesn't know how the story will end. He doesn't know how it will land. He doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets to the land that God will show him. He doesn't know what's going to happen ultimately when he gets onto Mount Moriah. He doesn't know where he's going. Because the invitation of God to us, it's not, let me tell you what's ahead. Let me give you the directions to where you're going. The invitation of God to us is not about the destination of where we're going. It's the companion of who wants to go with us, which is God, right? It's, do, you want, do you want God to get you where you want to go, or do you just want God to know him? That ultimately, like, whatever is your non-negotiable, right? Whatever is the thing not up for grabs in your life, the thing you really want in life, that is what your God is. And everything gets sacrificed on the altar of what that God is. And so the question, it, like, what's non-negotiable to you? What is, what is your God? What is, what is it that you really want? 
And think this out in a few categories. One, one reason why I think it's hard for people, at least in my conversations with non-Christians, uh, and even some Christians in the church, I would say, why it's hard to follow God in this day is there are things that the Bible, Christianity teaches that our culture looks at and just says, you know, no, no rational person believes that, right? That's, that's just, that's a terrible thing to believe. You shouldn't believe that. The Bible says it, but you shouldn't believe that. And so that becomes a major impediment or, or, or hurdle to, to faith. And yet, even those beliefs, which today feel like a big objection to Christianity, those beliefs uh, don't have a strong foundation. In other words, like 50, 60 years from now, the things that, that we take for granted today that we all think is true in our culture, like 50, 60 years from now, people are going to look back at us and laugh at us for what we believed. And I can tell this is true, like, like read the New York Times from 50, 60, 70 years ago, and you'll, you're going to laugh at what was, what was on the pages of the New York Times 50, 60, 70 years ago, because the beliefs that, that a culture has, they're not a firm foundation. They all crumble away at, at the end of the day. So there's things that you look at. It's like, I don't know if I can believe Christianity because of these things. Those things crumble away. Our beliefs, the way we see the world, all crumble away. They're not a firm foundation. Or it's a lot, I mean, Johnson County, right, a big big false foundation every one of us is tempted to build on here is our kids and their calendars and their future and the expectations we have on them, that becomes our non-negotiable. That's first in line for what gets made for the decisions that get made. When it comes to our career, to the money and wealth we, we want to have to keep up certain appearances, when we seek the approval of others, I don't know what it is for you, but what is the thing that you want to put in is the non-negotiable for you? The thing that's not up for grabs. This decision gets made first, then everything else flows. Because what God is doing, and he does this all through the Bible, is he comes to us and he says, you know, do you want me for me, or do you, are, are you just here to get something from me? It's essentially what's going on, and it's, it's a brutal way to ask Abraham, obviously, but this, God is like, do you want me, or do you want a son? That's the question at the heart of this text. So that's one point of application, is what's your non-negotiable? What's, what's not up for grabs? What do you want the other uh, point of application, and this is, this is brutal. This is, this is not helpful to you if you're in a moment of suffering or pain, um, but it's, it's here. And, and those of you who are not yet in this moment, you need it for the moment you're going to be in it. Um, but it's clear there are times when it's going to feel like God is just out to destroy you. And you think about this. So Genesis 21, Abraham loses his son Ishmael. And it's like I said, I wish we would preached on the story because it's, it's actually... It's pretty brutal. Like Abraham experiences a ton of pain because he says goodbye to his son who you know, he doesn't expect to see again. So he loses his son. He has one son left. That's all, he's, all he has left is his son Isaac. And we, you might expect like God to come and say, all right, we got to protect Isaac, right? We got to keep, the, let's wrap him in bubble. Let's put him in a tent. Uh, let's keep him safe, right? Let's not let anything happen to him, right? That's what we'd expect, but that's not what God does. God comes to Abraham and says, You've lost one son, and now um, I want the other. And if, like, if you take up life with God, I, there is no promise that he will keep you safe from excruciating decisions or experiences. At times, it will feel like he's destroying you. And so that reason, like, why go up the mountain, right? Why, why take up life with a God, um, like that. And it's, listen, one is because I think Abraham understands what's happening here is God is stripping away the fact that he's built his life on a son and that is not, that, that foundation will crumble away. And Abraham sees that he has used God to get things and he's going to God to say, no, even that's yours. I don't want you, God, for the things you can give me. I want you for you, for your own sake, to know you, to love you, to be with you. And so that 
that's one thing I think that pushed him up the mountain. And yeah, like I'm, I'm, I know I'm begging the question, which is okay, but hold on, like this is child sacrifice, right? Like this is a, like, later in the Bible, like this is condemned in really harsh ways by the prophets and by God Himself. Um, so why does God ask uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac like this? And a lot of people take the meaning of this passage is, you know, well that means like whatever God obeys you to do, you better do it. Right? And the point of this passage is obedience. And uh, in the Quran, the story is recreated, and that's how uh, Islam understands the story. Is it's obedience to God, no matter how irrational the, the command. And, uh, and, and so I, I even picked up uh, the book, uh, John Krakauer, the author, he wrote a book called Under the ba- Banner of Heaven. For some reason, I decided like that, that would be my vacation read, is this book about violence and Mormon fundamentalism. Uh, which was not a good decision. Uh, don't, don't pick up that book for vacation. Uh, in fact, the guy read it. He's like, that was a horrible book. And uh, it is. But I read about a third of it, and then I got out because I got a good quote for you this morning. But the reason he wrote Under the Banner of Heaven was it was post 9-11, and, and sort of the ethos of the country was like really concerned. When people believe in God and God tells them to do something, that's potentially dangerous. And I think he's right about that. So John Krakauer, he wrote, he wrote this. Uh, in the book, Under the Banner of Heaven. And he says, when religious fanaticism supplants rational thinking, all bets are suddenly off. Anything can happen. Absolutely anything. Common sense is no match for the voice of God. And I think he's, he's right about that. Um, and so is that the point of this text? Right? Obey God no matter how terrible the command. He can ask you to do anything, you better do it. Is that the point of this text? Story And for lots of reasons, I don't think that's the point of the story. Um, one, because the narrative itself doesn't go there. Um, but two is, is, over the last several decades, there's been a lot of helpful research done to understand uh, what's going on uh, in this story. And in particular, why does Abraham not like, tell God, no, like, no, I shouldn't do this. This is wrong. Why does Abraham accept the command? Because remember a couple chapters ago when Andrew preached on Genesis 18, Abraham argues with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, no, like if there's ten righteous people, right, well, you should save it. And God's like, okay. But now that God has said, sacrifice your son, Abraham's like, okay. You know, it's like, well, how does that happen? And, and uh, there's a book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son by a secular Jew named John Levinson. And what he did was he, he just did research to understand uh, what child sacrifice was like in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And he, has, he had a few key learnings to help understand what this text means. And what, first what he, he says is, is that in that day there was the law of primogeniture, which, which means the firstborn son of any family got like most of the inheritance. And the reason for that is, is because if you, let's say, you know, you're a family, you had four sons, and you divided the family's wealth, which was most, most likely land, uh, from four, between four, four sons, you actually you made your family poorer. Uh, you, now they have smaller tracts of land. The family's more vulnerable. Uh, you know, if, if a couple brothers fail, it's, it's just you put your family in actually a more difficult position. So what would happen is they would give the, most of the inheritance to the older son, to the firstborn son, to protect the family's wealth and long-term hopes. And so in, in that culture, the firstborn son was sort of the representative of the whole family's future and hope and, and wealth and destiny. So the firstborn son was really important uh, for those reasons. So Levinson points out that. The second thing he points out is that in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible in particular, throughout the, the Hebrew Bible, there's this idea that the firstborn son belongs to God. And this works out in a, in a number of different ways. The most, like the primary place is the Passover story, uh, right? So if you're not familiar with the story, that's Charlton Heston. It'll be on at Easter. Watch it then. You get the whole thing. <clears throat> but what the Passover was, at the end of 
the, the, the ten plagues, the tenth plague was God saying to all of Israel and Egypt, I am like I'm gonna I'm pronouncing judgment to free my free Israel from slavery. I'm pronouncing judgment on all of you, because you're all guilty before me. And I'm my judgment is gonna come through the fact that I'm gonna take the life of the first, your firstborn son. But God says, if you provide if you sacrifice an animal, a lamb instead. I will, I will pass over your house. The firstborn son will live. If the, lamb, the lamb could take the place of the firstborn son. But the idea is there that the firstborn son belongs to God. right? And so this idea gets picked up in Exodus 22, 28. When God's talking about offerings and sacrifices, he says, uh, Exodus twenty two twenty eight. 28, you shall not delay the offering of your harvest and your press. You shall give me the firstborn of your sons. And what that meant was in Israel, when you had your firstborn son, you had to go and make an offering to, at the temple to redeem your first son back to your, back to your family because the firstborn was God's. And the reason Levinson points out is that, that the firstborn was God is that, is that every family and every father had a debt of sin against God. Right? It's a holy God looks at us, we're sinners, and a sacrifice has to be made in place. And, and so the firstborn is representative of the sin of the family. And so you had to take the firstborn. You had to, to redeem the firstborn back to yourself by offering a sacrifice back to God to, to, keep your, to redeem your firstborn. So what Levinson, what he's saying is like what God doesn't say to Abraham is, hey, like go stab your son in a tent, right? It's not what he, he doesn't say kill uh, Isaac. He says offer him up as a burnt offering. And it's because of this theme that the understanding in this day was that the firstborn son was God's. Because the family had a debt of sin, the firstborn belonged to God. So Abraham understood that when God came to him and said, offer up Isaac as a burnt offering, what God was saying to Abraham was, I'm calling in my debt. You have a debt of sin, you owe me Isaac. Offer him up. And as a quick aside, because um, like this is, this is obviously like just really hard stuff um, to think through, but in that day, child sacrifice was very prominent in ancient Near Eastern culture because everyone believed that the gods were angry at us and you offered up a child in response to that. And a lot of, and I agree with them, I think this is right, one of the purposes of this story was actually to say, in Israel, we don't do that because we can provide, God provides the lamb instead of the child. So you don't have to, you don't have to do child sacrifice because of the lamb. But that's a whole nother, uh, whole nother you know, wormhole to go down. We're not going to go down that, but I, I do think a part of this narrative is, is actually condemning child sacrifice and saying that's not the way it will go um, in Israel. And yet, like, I do want us to sit in the horror of the fact that God has said to Abraham, your debt of sin means your firstborn is, is mine. And this, like, our culture hates this idea. A lot of people in the church hate this idea that we... We are so broken and flawed before God that there's a debt of sin that, that like, we cannot approach him without a sacrifice, without being made holy, without being made right. And yet I would say, if, you re, if you've you know, been with us through the Abraham narrative, Abraham did some like, truly awful things. Uh, he, he badly mistreated his wife to keep himself safe in a couple of different places. I've already mentioned he sort of grabbed this, this young woman named Hagar, made, him kind of like, made her like a half wife just to get a son out of her and then eventually had to send her away because of all the strife and arguments that happen in the family. And the question to be like, do we just get to do whatever we want and none of it matters? Right? Can people just mistreat others? And, and can there just be injustice all around us? And God's just like, well, it's all, it's all good in the end. It doesn't matter. Right? Is that, 
I don't think any of us want that. We want justice. We want people who are mistreated or abused to, to have justice in the end. And when God looks at Abraham and says, I want Isaac, what he's saying is, is Abraham, I'm calling him my dad, right? You, look what you've done. Look at your life. You've made a mess of it. You owe me this. And so the real horror of this passage, obviously a part of it is child sacrifice, but the real horror of this passage is Abraham, as he goes up that mountain, has to wrestle with the, the reality of his own sin, his own brokenness, his own injustice that he's done to other people. But it's actually, it's even worse than that because Isaac, if you go back to Genesis 12, remember God said to Abraham, it's through Isaac, I'm going to save the whole world. Right? God comes to Abraham and says, go to the land I'll show you. I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, I'm going to save the entire world. So it's not just that Abraham has to wrestle with his own sin and brokenness going up that mountain. It's also that he has to wrestle with the fact that like the very means of salvation, Isaac, God is now wanting to take out of the world. Right? And so like Abraham's not just wrestling with losing his own son. He's, he's wrestling with the fact that this child of promise, this child of salvation is also a child of sacrifice, a child whose life is marked, who's owed to God. And so Gerhard von Rod, he's a German commentator, he says this about this passage and wrestling with all that's going on here. He says, one can only answer all of the scruples people have about this narrative by saying that this narrative is about something much more frightening than child sacrifice. It has to do with a road God is calling Abraham into. He's calling Abraham into utter God-forsakenness. For in this test, God is confronting Abraham with the question of whether he is willing to give up God's very gift of promise. God appears to want to remove the salvation begun by himself from history. All right, Abraham's struggle is how can a God who is holy and just and will make all things right, how can that God forgive me and love me and be gracious to me? How can a holy God be, be gracious to me? That's the question. And unless, unless you think you're perfect and you've never hurt anybody, you've never done anything wrong, you, we all wrestle with this question. right? How can God look at the totality of my life, the things I've said, done, the mistakes I've made, just look at me and say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter, I love you anyway. Like, How can that happen? How does that work? Right? How can God love me and know me given the brokenness in my own heart, the brokenness in all of our own hearts? And unless, and like I'm half joking here, but I'm half not, like unless you're a psychopath who thinks you've never hurt anybody and never done anything wrong in your entire life, you will wrestle with this question, does God really love me? Right? Like how can I know that the God of the universe will not abandon me? And that is what Abraham's wrestling with all of that going up that mountain. That's the tension. And so why does he go? Right? I mean, on the one hand, I've said it's because he, he recognized God is, is saying, do you want me? Do you want my son? He also recognized he owes God Isaac through his sin, through his misdeeds, through his brokenness. And yet, that's, the, that's not what the story is about. It's about something else. And so in verse 6, the narr- it starts to slow down. Abraham loads up the, the wood, the burnt offering, everything ready to go. He leaves with Isaac. And oh gosh, a whole another interesting story would be what's Isaac thinking in this the story? Like I think Isaac's an adult. I think he knows what's happening actually. And so Isaac says, um, okay, dad, uh, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? Right? He's not dumb. He like he recognizes what's happening. And Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. And this, the, the phrase that God will provide, literally in the Hebrew, is, is God will see the lamb. God will see to it. 
Right? God will provide. He will see. He knows what's... I don't, Isaac, I don't know. I don't see it. But God sees it, and he knows, and he will provide. That's, that's what happens. So they go. Um, and there's lots of ways to read that verse. That's, I'm not interested in that, but there's lots of interesting ways to read that. And so they go further up the hill, and, and Abraham goes to begin to perform the sacrifice on Isaac, which, again, Isaac's probably late teens, early 20s potentially here. So, like, Isaac is, I think, involved in the sacrifice. But, again, that's a whole other sermon. Um, and, and as Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord stops him and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then we're told Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw, it's the same word from verse 8, that God will see for himself the lamb is provided. Now in verse 13, Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees, he sees the ram. So Abraham took the ram, he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or the Lord will see. It's the same word. As it said this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, or it shall be seen. It's the same word that ultimately, like this word is sort of the key to understanding what's going on here is the Lord will see to it. The Lord sees, the Lord provides. And so like, why does Abraham go up that mountain? It's not about obedience, right? It's not on the mountain of the Lord, I obeyed him. This isn't a story like God can command you anything, you better do it. It's not a story about obedience, it's not even a story about, uh, about you better believe, right? It's not on the mountain, you better believe God. It's, it's a story about the Lord providing, about us not knowing what's on the mountain, not knowing what's ahead, not seeing what's ahead, and yet when we get there, the Lord sees. He provides. And this phrase, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided, uh, is, is a really loaded phrase. And anybody uh, who was reading this um, when it was, you know, would have been first written, when they heard the phrase, on the mountain of the Lord, um, they would have known instantly what that was referring to, which is in most of the Hebrew Bible, that's a reference to the temple. The temple is the mount of the Lord. And it's why Jewish tradition believes that this, this is the same uh, mountain range. This is the same area the temple would later be built. And that later when Jewish families would bring the animal to replace their own first son, right, that God, who was owed to God, they were reliving this story of understanding my debt of sin like leads to my firstborn coming and I'm going to redeem him back to the Lord through this animal, and that the Lord has provided a way for me to know him despite my sin, despite my brokenness. He has provided the way to, to, to reconcile this relationship. And, and, and here's the thing, like we, we don't have a temple that we take. We don't do, that's not our sacrifice anymore. And, and Abraham could intuit only what, what we now know, like this side of Jesus and the cross is, is God's ultimate answer to this story. Because the the mountains surrounding the temple were not just where the sacrifices were made. They are the same place, this place where Abraham offered up Isaac. It's the same hills, the same mountains where Jesus was led out of Jerusalem onto a mount called Golgotha, onto a cross. And if Abraham had been there to see, like, or to see that sacrifice, to see God the Father not withhold his son, his only son, whom he loved from us, I think Abraham would have said back the words to God that are spoken over Abraham when Abraham is asked not to do the sacrifice. Abraham could have looked at Jesus and said, now I know that God loves me, seeing he has not withheld his son, his only son, from me. 
Right, that what Abraham could only intuit, we now know full, fully. That we can look at the God of the Bible and say, now I know that you love me because like, you have not withheld your son, your only son whom you loved from, from me. See, so build your life on anything but God. Right, Make anything but God of the Bible your non-negotiable. Be it your marriage, your career, your kids, your, whatever it is, it crumbles. It doesn't last. And those of, like, those of us who've entered into the way of Jesus, our foundation is it's not our obedience to God. It's not our, even our faith, as much as little or, or as little or as much as we have of it. Our hope and our, our like, what, what holds us, what gives us confidence that God loves us is that he did not withhold his son, his only son, whom he loved from us. And so what, what should push up, us up the mountain of faith, right? Why should we make God are non-negotiable, the one thing that we do not move from. Why keep faith in God even when it feels like he's destroying us? He makes life so difficult. Our answer to that question is the cross, is that we have a better, a better Mount Moriah where the Father did not withhold his Son from us. And so in Romans 8, Paul is meditating on this. In a season of persecution and suffering for the church, he meditates on the fact that God was willing to do what he did not require Abraham to do. And Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all, how will he not also give us everything else along with him? Or the, God, the call of God comes into our life, and it's, it, all, it, all it is, is is God saying to us, come with me, we're going this way. And if you need God to spell that out for you, he's, he's not. He's not tell, he doesn't, he's not going to tell you where we're going, right? He's not, he knows, he'll point you the direction, but he's not going to tell you which mountain. He's not going to tell you which, which land. And for many of us, right, that's the point we occupy in life, is we don't know what's ahead of us. Right? We don't see what's ahead of us, and our faith is based on the fact that the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and he will provide. Whatever happens on Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. And the reason we have that confidence and the reason we can walk towards that place of faith is because we know what's behind us. Right? The, on the Mount of the Lord, it's not just the Lord provided. Right? It's, we, our testimony is not just the Lord will see to it. It's our testimony is the Lord provided his own son for us. Right? His only son whom he loved. And while I know, like, there's a mountain ahead of, of me, right? There's, all of us have future, and we don't know what's in front of us, right? We don't know what's ahead, but we know what's behind us. And what's behind us should lead us forward into a future that the one thing we need in life for a non-crumbling, sure foundation, no matter what we might suffer or experience in this world, is a cross. Is Jesus, the only Son of God, whom God did not spare, did not withhold from us. And if he did not withhold his own Son from you, whatever's ahead, whatever's in front, the Lord will provide. Let's pray. Father, I, there's still so much in this story, and it's meant to trouble and confuse, I think, us. God, it's just, your word is a, it's just a, a powerful example of, of how you confront and challenge our thinking, our way of being, and so, God, for every person in this room, especially myself, I, God, I pray that this, this story would just deconstruct the false things that we, we try to build our life on and see that the one thing that is truly sure in all of our lives is, is Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and resurrected for us. And wherever we're at this morning, that will not change. 
And so help us enter into that place of faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.